So Genesis 18, hear the word of the Lord this morning. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milks and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. And the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray. Our Lord and our God, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that by your spirit, you would use your word to renew our minds 
that you'd use your word to reshape our wills, and that you'd use your word to reorder our affections. For the sake of your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would argue that friend is second only to the word love in terms of words whose meaning and significance have been cheapened by our modern day misuse of them. To grant someone the label friend used to be reserved for someone with whom you spent considerable time in quality and quantity, someone you could trust your most personal thoughts and secrets to, and someone you could count on to be there with you through anything. A friend was someone like Merry and Pippin, fictional characters from the Lord of the Rings series, that when they discover Frodo is going on a secret and dangerous quest, they decide to join him without asking his permission. And they heard about this quest because his other friend, Samwise Gamgee, couldn't keep his mouth shut. So Frodo wonders if he really has friends that he can trust on this dangerous and secretive quest. And they reassure him with these words. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. That is what the word friend should mean and look like. But it's not what we often mean by the word today. When we say in normal conversation, oh yeah, that's my friend so-and-so. We mean, I know their first name and I like what I know of them so far, but we're really not that close. Or someone will mention a name in conversation and we'll say, oh yes, yes, I'm Facebook friends with so-and-so, which really means we've had almost zero real life contact with them. We just occasionally stalk them online. (laughs) Or kids these days, the kids these days. (laughs) They will say when playing Call of Duty, that they were playing Call of Duty with their friends from all over the world. And by friends, they mean someone they never have, nor likely ever will meet, but have bonded together over fake warfare in virtual reality. I would venture to say that never has there been a time when the word friend was used more frequently. And yet the true reality and concept behind the word has never been more lacking. We suffer from FDD, friendship deficit disorder. As one great theologian said, you keep using that word, but I do not think it means (laughs) what you think it means. Now, why do I bring all this up? I bring this up because when the biblical authors look back on the the relationship, the, the covenant bond and interaction that Abraham had with God, guess how they describe Abraham? They describe Abraham as the friend of God, God's friend, a friend of God. Three times in the Bible, 2 Chronicles 27, Isaiah 41.8, and James 2.23, you can check my work, Abraham receives the title, the friend of God. And unlike our often flippant and shallow use of the term, the Bible preserves the significance of this term by using it very sparingly and only to speak of relationships that are unique and set apart from the regular routine relationships that we normally have in life. And so what we learn through the life of Abraham, one of the things we learn through it, is that to be in covenant with God, which we talked about last week, is to enjoy the friendship of God. When God bonds us together with him in covenant, one of the benefits he gives us through that is 
the friendship of God. So think of it, at the heart of covenant is the relational bond initiated by God, which is summarized in that phrase throughout scripture, I will be your God and you will be my people, this relational bond. In other words, through covenant, God makes friends with sinners. Through covenant, God befriends creatures, sinners. Sin has brought alienation, it's brought separation, it's brought enmity, and yet God, by his grace, through covenants like the one he makes with Abraham, is reconciling people to himself and befriending sinners. And in Genesis 18, through the Lord's interaction with Abraham, we get a picture, a window into what it looks like to be in covenant friendship with God. Well, first, we see that in covenant friendship with God, we become partakers of his personal fellowship. God has fellowship with us in friendship with us. Look with me at verse one. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So right as we enter into this passage, it's stated so matter-of-factly that you almost miss its significance. The Lord appeared to Abraham. And the reason this is significant in the storyline of Genesis is because ever since the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, there has been a growing chasm between God and humanity. What was once this wonderful fellowship of peace and wholeness in the beginning has become this growing chasm of alienation and separation and estrangement and even enmity, as you saw in Genesis 11. Kind of the, the enmity between humanity and God reaches an apex in Genesis 11 when humanity tries to come together in rebellion against God, building a tower to the heavens. Now, they weren't building a tower to the heavens because they wanted to be closer to their friend. No, no, they were assaulting the throne room of God. So God scatters and disperses humanity throughout the earth. You see the alienation, separation, and enmity that sin brings. But now with Abraham, something is changing. God is bringing, God is bridging that chasm and drawing near to humanity, to Abraham. Well, there's some confusion regarding who exactly shows up at the door of Abraham's tent. Look at verses two and three. The Lord appears, verse one, then verse two and three. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So, so wait, w- w- which one is it? Did the Lord appear or did three men appear at Abraham's tent? Who, who exactly is approaching Abraham? Well, let me give you some important principles for examining and interpreting confusing parts of scripture. How do we reconcile tension in scripture? Well, one principle is this. When you're coming to tension or confusing part in scripture, keep this in mind. Keep the plain things the main things. Keep the plain things the main things. If this rule was followed more carefully, we would have half as many cults as we do, and half as many people would have rapture insurance policies than they do today. You can ask me about that later. So what is plain or clear in this text is a couple things. One, verse one, the Lord appeared to Abraham. So in some way, God is appearing to Abraham. What also is clear is that Abraham has some understanding that those who are appearing to him are not ordinary guests. He, he bows down. He calls him Lord or him Lord. And if you look at verse 10 and verse 13, the speech begins by saying, the Lord said. So in some way, God is there speaking to Abraham. So the plain thing, 
should be the main thing, is that in some way the Lord appeared to and spoke to Abraham, almost like a man visits and speaks with his friend. Second principle when dealing with tension or difficulties in scripture is do not confuse speculation with interpretation. Beware of confusing speculation with interpretation. Speculation is when we start speaking where the Bible is silent. Or it's when we start speaking loudly where the Bible is very quiet. For example, I was reading a number of commentaries. They said, these three men here, all the persons of the Trinity are are showing up there in the appearance of man. Cool, but fanciful. It's speculation that we don't have any data in the text to really elucidate that. So that's speculation. Interpretation is when you make sense of the data that is actually there in the passage itself. For example, if I said to you, I think that one of these visitors, one of the visitors at least, is the Lord appearing to Abraham, but temporarily veiled in the appearance of a man. Well, your question immediately to me should be, where do you see that in the text? That's always the question that you should ask next. And if my response to you is, I feel it in my heart to be true. Then your response back should be, feelings are deceiving. Only the word of God is worth believing. But if I pointed out instead some data to you, some evidence in the text that the speech of one of the visitors is attributed to God. One of the visitors has divine properties in that he's able to recognize that Sarah laughed, even though it says Sarah laughed to herself. She didn't laugh out loud. And in verse 22, it says that Abraham still stood before the Lord. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 19, it says the two angels came to Sodom. So it seems like one of them is the Lord in the appearance of a man, and two of them are angels. So what I tried to show you there is instead of just telling you what I think, I tried to show you how the sausage was made, as it were, how I approached the text like Sherlock Holmes, as it were, to give you an understanding of how you wrestle with and decipher difficult sections of the text. So all that to say, the Lord in some way is visiting Abraham. And notice what the Lord does when he appears to Abraham. If you look at verses four through eight, we see that the Lord visits Abraham and sits down and shares a meal with him. Abraham scrambles around, runs around to to gather this really lavish meal together because he wants to eat with the Lord who's appearing there. There was a news article a few years back in which the author was seeking to address the question, how do you know if someone is a friend rather than just an acquaintance? Kind of distinguishing those things. And they stated in their article that sharing meals together was one of the distinguishing marks of moving from an acquaintance to a friendship, sitting down over a meal, sharing food together. And I think they were onto something because in the Bible, food and fellowship is very closely linked together. It's one thing to wave and say hi to someone, to know them on a first name basis, but it's a whole different thing to sit down and break bread with someone over your table, in your home to converse with them over a meal. And some have pointed out that this moment in scripture, this meal is very significant because the last time there was a memorable meal in scripture, it was a meal of rebellion. When Adam and Eve took and ate from the tree that God said not to eat of, instead of waiting for the table he set as it were, they they took the food without praying and they ate in the garden of Eden in rebellion. And yet God is now here eating with a man. And it's also interesting to note that some of the meal elements that Abraham serves the Lord are some of the very things that appear later in Leviticus 7 
when Moses describes the peace offering, the Thanksgiving fellowship meal that would be eaten in the presence of the Lord as part of the tabernacle system. Something significant is going on here. And it seems to be communicating that with Abraham and through Abraham, fellowship with the Lord is being restored. And God, through this covenant he's making, these promises he's fulfilling through Abraham, is beginning to befriend sinners by being reconciled to them through his grace. And this theme of God eating with sinners reaches a climactic point in the Bible in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was given a a snarky title from the religious leaders. Jesus loved to eat, and he loved to eat with certain suspect company. Pharisees, tax tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, the outcasts. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, called him the friend of sinners because he ate with them. And that, that friendship kind of culminates on a specific meal when Jesus says, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. That Jesus is befriending sinners, that he's eating with them. So for example, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're to be reminded that we who were once alienated and estranged and at enmity with God have been given a seat at his table and called friends. We are able to sit down and have fellowship with the Lord because the one who is the bread of life laid down his life for us. As Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. So in covenant friendship with God, we become partakers of his personal fellowship. And now like any friendship, any relationship, our relationship with the Lord is enriched, it's enjoyed more deeply through the investment of time. It's one of the ways God has made us. Time invested in relationship grows and enriches relationships. So the time you invest in corporate worship, where we we kind of feast together as God's people in God's presence on a rich spiritual meal, and then the time you invest in family or private worship, where you feast in God's presence on spiritual disciplines, those are the relational avenues that God has given us to deepen our friendship with him. So do you take advantage of those relational avenues that God has given you to deepen friendship with him? Because if we're honest, we are fickle and flighty friends. We find so many other things to do than to spend time with the Lord. And yet that draws us back to the Lord who is our friend because he is the faithful and forbearing friend, the one who is always faithful who always forbears with us, who pursues us when we stray and still welcomes us after long absences of our ignoring him. Well, secondly, in covenant friendship with God, we become inheritors of his impossible promises. In other words, we have a friend who we can trust to do the impossible. If if time is one of the bonds of friendship, then, then trust would be one of the other ones. We have a God who gives us impossible promises and we can trust him to do the impossible. Look at verses nine and 10. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So jump back 25 years ago from this text. About 25 years ago, we were in Genesis 12 Abraham was a a nobody from nowhere, just a pagan worshiping in Ur of the Chaldeans. And God called him and he gave him some great and grand promises. I give you a great name, make you a great nation, 
give you a great land and great blessing is going to come through you to all the families of the earth. That was about 25 years ago or so. So God starts, as it were, with the, the general and broad promises. And as we are moving through the text of Genesis, they're, they're narrowing down and they're coming to a defining point. And that defining point is the one obstacle that stands between the fulfillment of those promises. Namely, Sarah is without a child. So, so God shows up today. is at the door of Abraham's tent to tell him very specifically that the one major obstacle that remains is going to be fulfilled in a more specific time frame, this time next year. It is the second most shocking pregnancy announcement in all of history. Mary, a virgin, being the first. Perhaps mine being the third, perhaps. <laughs> when Ashley first told me that we were expecting our first child, I was shocked. I, I think I laughed. I think I hyperventilated. I think I might have passed out. I don't, I don't remember. But my response was due to the unplanned and unexpected nature of the announcement that my wife gave me. It was not due to the possibility, impossibility. I knew it was possible. I, I know how that stuff works, all right? I don't need a lesson on that. I just didn't plan for it or expect it. Sarah's reaction is for the opposite reason. She has been planning and expecting and hoping year after year for this. She just believes it's impossible now. There's no way it's possible. Look at her reaction in verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She laughs. And laughter becomes one of the themes kind of in this section. Her laughter, I would venture to say, is the laughter of cynicism and unbelief. She's been planning and hoping for this for so long, only to suffer disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, that she has stopped planning and hoping altogether. So the, the constant experience of unmet expectation is like wave after wave crashing on the rocks and eroding her hope. And now what's left is, is a cynicism. And not only that, but she has faced up to the facts of her situation. She's not, she doesn't have a PhD in biology, but she knows the reality of her physical situation. Look at verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, and not just old, advanced in years. So they're like old, old. And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So this is the Bible's tactful, delicate way of saying, physically, biologically, this is impossible. Not like Ethan Hunt Mission Impossible, where it'd be really, really hard, but it'd make for a good movie when it's accomplished. No, no, this is impossible, impossible. Humanly speaking, there is no way that this can be accomplished. That's why she laughs. It, it, it's too good to be true after all she's hoped for. And it's too difficult to be possible after what she's experienced physically. What the Lord does not join in her laughter. said he rebukes her for her laughter. Look at verses 13 and 14. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And he repeats the promise once again in case she didn't hear him the first time. How would you answer that question? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I don't mean how should you answer that question, but how do you functionally answer that question in your heart and your own life? Not the Sunday school answer that you know that Mike Bruce will nod his head to, 
But how do you functionally really answer that question? We laugh at Sarah for laughing at the Lord because we have the, we have the privilege of our vantage point. We know how it works out, so it, it's funny. But we laugh with Sarah, like Sarah, at the Lord more times than we probably care to admit. I have laughed the laughter of cynicism and unbelief in God's face. Remember in mid-March of 2020, someone said something very super spiritual to me, like, this could really be a great blessing in disguise that the Lord uses to mightily grow his church. I laughed and my first thought was, or he could be shutting down the church and I lose my job and I have to move in with my parents (laughs) once again. You can check, that's legitimately one of my thoughts. Or when it comes to the possibility the dream of a church, our church finding its own building and facility, I ride a cynical, hopeful roller coaster on a daily basis, up and down, no seatbelt on, just along for the ride. <laughs> How about you when it comes to your own life? How do you laugh at the Lord? Maybe you laugh at the Lord when it comes to his ability to change and transform your character and habits. Many people have laughed at the Lord and said, I am the way that I am and there's nothing that can be done about it. This is just who I am. Maybe you laugh at the Lord when it comes to unbelieving children or family members. You've laughed and said they are the way that they are and nothing can be done for them. Or maybe you laugh at the Lord when it comes to his promises for the future. We are inheritors of just as impossible promises as the one Sarah got. New heavens and new earth, a new glorified body, no more sin or suffering or sorrow. I mean, things are the way that they are. Nothing is going to change, right? Too often we laugh like Sarah and we need to hear the Lord's rebuke. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The Lord is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. No one can stop his hand or thwart any of his purposes. Your very existence right now demonstrates that nothing is too hard for the Lord. When we look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man You're mindful of him? This fearfully, wonderfully made being who has conscious awareness of the fact that we're in this room, you can see and hear me. You breathe breaths moment by moment that God sustains you with. The fact that we are here consciously breathing is a marvel of the Lord's doing. More than that, your salvation, your very salvation demonstrates that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Your salvation was a human impossibility. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not sick on a hospital bed, waiting for the FDA to approve something that would make it humanly possible for you to be saved. Not waiting for the government to stop, you know, hindering something on the black market that might have saved you. No, no, you were dead. There was nothing that could be done. No trial was awaiting something to come out that could save you. You were dead. But God made you alive together with Christ and has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. More than that, the historical objective facts that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and buried, that on the third day he rose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That proves that nothing is too hard for the Lord. The fact that there's an empty tomb on earth and an occupied throne in heaven demonstrates that nothing is too hard for the Lord. In covenant friendship with God, we become inheritors of his impossible promises. 
And we get to watch him demonstrate that he can do the impossible. We have a friend who we can trust to do the impossible. Well, third and finally, in covenant friendship with God, we are the recipients of his revealed will. In other words, we have a friend who speaks to us, who reveals himself to us. Look at verses 16 to 18. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? So here we learn that the Lord has another stop planned on his visit, namely to the city of Sodom. And at this point, there's two things we know about the city of Sodom. We know that it has a reputation for being exceedingly sinful. This is the original sin city, as it were. But we also know that Lot, Abraham's nephew, with his family, lives there in Sodom. And so the Lord decides to disclose to Abraham what his plans are for Sodom. And it's going to be made clear in the next chapter that his plans for Sodom are to destroy the city because of their exceeding wickedness and unrighteousness and injustice. The cries of it have ascended to the Lord, as it were, and he does not let them go unheard and unresponded to. So the Lord discloses his plans to Abraham. And in revealing his will to Abraham, we see another reason why the Bible says three times Abraham was the friend of God. Friends disclose things. They share things with one another. And unlike anyone else really at this time, God does not conceal himself from Abraham or leave him to just walk around in the darkness of unbelief and spiritual slavery, as it were, to foreign gods. He reveals himself to Abraham and speaks to him like one friend speaks to another. And when it comes to God's speech, God's speech not only reveals to us what he's going to do and what he has done, every time God speaks, he's revealing to us what he's like, his character. His communication is relational, personal. It discloses who he is. Abraham didn't receive a digital download of systematic theology. The the Westminster Confession wasn't downloaded into his brain. He didn't get all the answers to the theology test before the test started. God slowly, progressively unfolded to Abraham and us who he is and what he's like. So Abraham is getting to know who God is, and here he learns God is just and righteous. And that means he does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. He does not allow the cries of injustice and unrighteousness to go unheard and unresponded to. So the Lord reveals his actions and his character to us, not just that we can know more about him. So part of it is to to know him, but also so that we would be more like him. When God reveals himself, he's revealing who he is so that we might be conformed to him. Look at verse 19. As God is as it were, debating about disclosing this to Abraham, he says this in verse 19, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So what convinces God, as it were, to disclose to Abraham what he's doing, what his righteousness and justice looks like, is so that Abraham can in turn grow in his practice of righteousness and justice and pass it on to future generations so that the character of God can be reflected in the people of God. One of the ways this is stated in 
theology jargon is that revelation is for imitation. God reveals himself so that we would know who he's like, so that we would be like him, so that we conform to his image. And think about this on, on a human level. Friendships have an influential and transformative effect on us, for good or for bad. We, we could all probably recount in this room friendships we had where bad company corrupted good morals. Like the many friendships that I had where information and ways of doing things was disclosed to me that I, I wish I, I, I wouldn't have known. Or we can probably recount friendships where we had where iron sharpened iron and refined us in our character. And I can think of many friendships in which someone came alongside me and helped me walk through things and showed me things I needed to know about myself so that I could grow as a Christian. Friendships have a transformative effect. Well, a relationship with the Lord is the ultimate transformative friendship in which the more you really get to know the Lord, the more you start to become like him. Think of the disciples. In the book of Acts, when the Roman authorities and religious leaders found the disciples, you know what they said about them? We can tell that they had been with Jesus. That transformative relationship shaped them so that other people could identify them. Well, Abraham is learning about the Lord. And as he does, he learns about the righteous and just character of the Lord and what that means for Sodom. And he really has to wrestle with this and comes to grips with it. So the prayer that I read as he's talking the Lord down, as it were, is him coming to grips and wrestling with who the Lord is and what that means he's going to do. So look at verses 23 to 25. Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So he starts with 50, then 45, then 40, then 30, then 20, then 10, and he stops. And they, they go their separate ways. What, what is Abraham doing? What's going on? Some say he's trying to delicately bargain with the Lord. He's trying to strike a deal with the Lord. This is an early version of let's make a deal. I, I don't think that's exactly what's going on. I think Abraham is discovering what God is like. He's righteous and just. And what that means, specifically for Sodom, and he is coming to grips with that and wrestling with it. it what does it mean that the Lord is right and just? What does that look like? So he's wrestling with the question that many of us do. Is the judge of all the earth truly just? And what does that look like? And so in his mind, he's coming from a background. Remember, Abraham came out of a, a pagan background. as it were. He, he was worshiping false and foreign gods in a different nation before the Lord called him. So he is trying to plumb the depths of this question of justice and righteousness. Because in his pagan background... All he knew were rather unfriendly gods that were quite capricious. They, they rarely did what we would describe as righteous and just actions. So he's coming to grips with who the Lord is and what that means. Well, through this line of questioning, Abraham comes to the point where he's content that the Lord is not vindictive or capricious. He's not overlooking, quote unquote, a number of righteous people in the city and just saying, just wipe them all out. I don't care who's there. No, he knows that the Lord is evaluating and assessing things rightly. 
and he is just. So in the end, he answers his own question. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. And I'm going to close my mouth and go my, go my way. And for us, to know that the judge of all the earth is just and righteous is an overwhelmingly comforting thought and an overwhelmingly terrifying thought. It's, it's comforting because it reassures us that ultimate and final justice is in the hands of one who will execute it fully and perfectly. In the Lord's hands, justice will not miscarry, will not misfire. It will be executed fully and perfectly. Every cry for justice and righteousness in this world will reach its resolution in the Lord's hands one day, ultimately. We can, we can rest on that. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. When we have questions about hard things in life that we cannot answer, this is the pillow to lay our head. The judge of all the earth will do what is right, better in his hands than in ours. That's comforting. But it's terrifying. If we know ourselves rightly, it should be terrifying. If the Lord should mark iniquities, if the Lord should bring up and hold us accountable to the record of all of our wrongs, who could stand in the Lord's presence? If the judge of all the earth treated us with strict justice and righteousness, who could stand in his presence? And this is why we need to know the one and only righteous person through whom the Lord will spare the wicked. Abraham comes down to one. You see the Lord saying, yes, if there's one righteous person, I will spare the wicked because there is one and only one truly righteous person, Jesus, who is rightly called the friend of sinners. Jesus is the friendship of God, as it were, made flesh dwelling among us. What does the friendship of God look like? It looks like Jesus in his earthly ministry. As Jonathan Edwards said, whatsoever there, whatsoever there is or can be that is desirable to be in a friend is in Jesus. And that to the highest degree that can ever be imagined or desired. Jesus is the friend of sinners. And how do we know this? Well, in the greatest act of friendship, Jesus lays down his life, not just for friends, for alienated, estranged, hostile enemies so that we could be reconciled to God and brought into this covenant relationship with God. And in covenant with God, we have friendship with God. Let's pray.